0: Let us pray. God, we pause and we reflect that we have just sung the very essence of the gospel that you have sent your Son, and that he has taken upon himself all of our unrighteousness, all of our filth, all of our shame, all of our sin has been placed upon him, absorbed in his satisfactory, substitutionary death. And that the pain of death is no more through the power of the resurrection, the separation that we have from you, a holy God, has been bridged through the accomplished, completed work of Christ upon the cross in his resurrection. So we say thank you. Thank you that we know that you give the power of your Son to ascend upon high, to be seated at the right-hand throne of the Father, and to continue to intercede. So we need help. Help to clearly hear your voice. Help to know that you are more powerful than anything that we face this morning. Any doubt, you are more powerful than any depression, you are more powerful than. Any separation and, and animosity that we have at home or at work, you are more powerful than. So we claim today the power of you, the risen Lord and Savior, and we ask that you would speak to us anew and afresh. May we have ears to hear, lives to obey your word as we hear it this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Dawson. Would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 2, specifically verses 39 through 52. We have a preaching plan that is about a six-month plan. So in August, I knew that there would be one sermon that I would preach that would follow Bill's wonderful exposition last week of Unchained Melodies. He helped us think very carefully of how the melody of the gospel is to be sung anew and afresh. I knew that we would have one sermon that would continue in this early infancy and adolescent segment of the gospel. Disciple Now is next week. We're praying for Disciple Now. We'll begin a new series that will take us into the spring and and beyond the third Sunday. So for this Sunday, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever left your children on accident anywhere. (laughs) Now, there's a whole other sermon that I have that will come for those of you that consistently leave your children on purpose somewhere. But that is not this sermon on accident. Anyone, I know most of you in this room don't have big families that gather together and you sleep through your alarm clock and you hurry to get on a plane and you're thinking to yourself, did I I let the garage down? Did I do this? And like at 35,000 feet, you you scream Kevin uh, to realize... That you left your son who is uh, to, to fend off these mumbling burglars. I, I know most of you have not lived out the, the, the plot line of Home Alone, but maybe there's some of you in this room that can relate, at least to your pastor, of what it feels like to leave your kids somewhere on accident. I think it's a rite of passage for children of pastors and ministers to be left at church. I just think this is a part of their character building. Trials and temptations are going to come in their life. So a part of that is some of you there are there's so many pastors, kids in Dawson. There's so many of you that are ministers, children. And I, I can imagine you have stories like my boys have of being left not there's no we to this we don't leave our children Danielle was in our early service and she she would tell me we haven't talked about this but to be careful with my pronouns because uh I, lo- I, I do the leaving there's no we in this the way this works <laughs> the, the way this works in the Eldridge household is real simple so, about like 104, two years, we would have Wednesday nights, we have responsibilities, I have responsibilities, Danielle does, but, you know, once every two years or so, Danielle will come to me, and, you know, she tells me at 9, she tells me at 12, she tells me at 3, she tells me at 6, I need you this evening to, to get the kids. After Wednesday night, I look at her, and I say, I understand the words that are coming out of your mouth, I can do that, I'm a responsible parent, I'm a responsible uh, father i can do this and so so what happens is i get home and it's really quiet at the house and i was just sitting there I'm like, I got to take advantage of this. So I cut on Sports Center. I, I try to find the Cubs. I'm like, oh, I love this. And then Danielle comes home and it's really quiet. And she looks at me and she says, Did you not get the kids? And I said, I thought you were going to get kids. And so I told you at nine, at 12, at three, at six, I need you to get the kids tonight. And, and she looks at me. She says, I have one word for this, David. And that word is irresponsible. And I say, Danielle, honey, I have two words for this date night right now. <laughs> Opportunity. <laughs> we got to get this in quality time and inevitably she tells me that they are our kids we have to go back to the nursery and get them uh, and, and so we have that it's happened once or twice or three times it hasn't happened at Dawson but if you see a 6 year old and he says he is Jonathan Eldridge just just cur- you know carry him to our house you can we'll give you the forwarding address for our child there so it happens with preachers Kids, this story in Luke chapter 2 is the story not of parental neglect, not of parental forgetfulness, but it is a story of a 12-year-old Jesus being at the temple and his parents saying, I thought you had them. No, I thought you had them. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. Here's a story that's familiar, but it's its import to us. It's application to us at times can be elusive. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Important for you to see that. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But they, then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus, in verse 52, in a very similar passage to verse 40, increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. It's unique to Luke's gospel, this account. In the Jewish tradition, to get to the age of 12, begin this intensive preparation for adulthood. It's not surprising to us that Luke would give us the account. It's interesting, the content of the account... Extra-biblical Gospels, those that are not seen as inspired by the Holy Spirit, like the Gospel of Thomas, spend a lot of time speculating about Jesus between uh, this time here, the 12-year-old time of Jesus, 13-year-old time, 14-year-old time. What was it like? It's interesting, and the only authoritative Holy Spirit-inspired account of Jesus as as an adolescent that this is the story that we have. Jesus' parents, we see, raise Him in a, a, the nurture and the admonition of that first century Jewish world. There would be three festivals that were uh, really important. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Pentecost. But the highlight of a Jewish person's year, one that they would make a pilgrimage to, was Passover. Passover is the Easter The equivalent of it for the Israelites, it is the time that they look back, they commemorate, they look back, they celebrate God setting them free from Egypt, setting them free from the tyrannical, cruel hands of Pharaoh, setting them free to go into the promised land. So it's not surprising to us that this is a part of Jesus's heritage as his parents are faithful Jewish parents here. There's a three day trip that Jesus' parents would take. They go in groups uh, for camaraderie. They grow into groups for protection. So there's a lot of relatives that are friends that are going there. They celebrate the Feast of Passover at seven days probably. Then they go their separate way back home. Now, it's interesting for us to see how, how would Jesus have stayed back and Joseph not have known, Mary would not have known. Now, it's not that far from my opening illustration, William Barclay, 19th century, really early, 20th century, around that time, uh, just really church uh, scholar, New Testament scholar. He talks about some of this historical background that could undergird this story. It was a custom for the women to get up early, to leave, and then the men to come later. They would meet up. So hypothetically, it could be that a group of women would have left early, Mary thinking that... Jesus is with the guys and with Joseph will come later. Joseph comes later in the group thinking that Jesus would have been with another group. They meet together about a day later. Joseph talks to Mary. Mary talks to Joseph. When was the last time you saw Jesus? I've got one word for you, Joseph. Irresponsible. I don't know. I don't know what Mary would say. So there's a day back, they come to the temple, it takes another day for them to find Jesus. Imagine the commotion, many of you, um, maybe some of you are going to Atlanta tomorrow night, and you know what it's like to have hundreds of thousands of fans coming in and out of a stadium, the commotion, the rush of that. I mean, this is a, a time in Jerusalem where the crowds are... there's all kinds of an influx of pilgrims that come in for this celebration. And so it's not surprising to us it would take them a while to find Jesus. So there's three days that a, a worried mother was looking for her son. Three days that an anxious father was looking for his son. They find him. What is he doing? He's among the teachers. He's listening to them, but he's asking questions to them. Everyone is astonished By his insight, it isn't that Jesus is just an overly inquisitive Sunday school kid that's got his hand raised, asking all the types of questions about the Trinity and those kinds of... I mean, it isn't that. The insight that we have is the bookends of the start of this section and the end of the section in verse 40 and verse 52 that tell us clearly that Jesus was growing in wisdom and understanding. And our finitude... It is difficult for us to fully grasp what this means. We do know Jesus is fully God. He's fully man. So he grows in an understanding and a reflection of his identity. as the very one that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. He grows in his understanding of what his primary purpose is going to be. And it seems in some respects that at the age of 12, he he is seeing that there is a greater allegiance to his life than just the allegiance as the adopted son of Joseph, the earthly son of Mary. But there is an eternal heritage that goes even deeper here. Mary and Joseph, they show up on the scene. And they're astonished. But not only are they astonished, they're, they're annoyed. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you're a mother in this room, you can read Mary's words here in verse 48 and understand that this is a really interesting glimpse of a once in a uh, lifetime of human history of what it was like for Mary to raise her biological son, but simultaneously the eternal son of God. And so she's amazed, but she's annoyed just as you parents, mothers, even fathers in this room can love your kids, but be equally really annoyed by them. What Mary says to Jesus when she finds him, not, oh, my sweet Jesus. Oh, I, I've been longing to see you. Come give your mom a hug here. That's not, that's not the tone of what she's saying here. This is what she says. Why have you treated us so? Do you know your father and I, that we've been searching for you, and the understatement of Luke's narrative is, is that they were in great distress. you know what it feels like for us to be looking for you? This is the sign of a mother who is greatly distressed by the absence of their son, and why would you do this to us? Now notice what Jesus does. He doesn't say... Like many 12-year-olds would say, Mom, you're just being so overprotective. Mom, I've got this. Mom, it's okay. Mom, I've told you I need a little space. I've got to one day fly from, from here. This is not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus looks at his mom and he says these words Then, Why were you looking for me? We don't know Mary's response to his question But of course, she's thinking, because you're my son. Of course, I would come looking for you. And then he said, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? You see, Mary is on a earthly plane, thinking of her earthly son. And And Jesus, in this interesting clash of commitments, takes her Horizoning takes her focus from this earthly plane to this eternal plane. Now Mary's going to have to deal with this for all of her life. That maternal instinct to protect her son, a son that has an eternal purpose to go through Gethsemane and go to Golgotha, ultimately to be raised as the savior of all humanity. But this was somebody's child who had that purpose. This is Mary's son who has that purpose. So Jesus is saying, you're talking to me as a earthly mother. I've got to be in my eternal father's home. I've got to be about his business. I've got a greater purpose. Now, it's interesting with this passage, the options that we have. I mean, you have times in the Bible where there's descriptions of what happened. And at times, it's just a description. I mean, this happened. This helps us understand the unfolding narrative of God's people. And this is a description. There are times where we're thinking with descriptions, is there something that is prescriptive about the description? Is there an underarching principle that, that really shines forth in the midst of this historical account? I heard it growing up whether it was Sunday school teachers or or pastors, there's a a way of taking this passage and sort of spiritualizing this passage and tying it up with this neat bow. And it goes something like this. Don't leave Jesus at church. Husband, don't don't come to church and then go back home and, and in your marriage not have Christ at the center of your marriage. Employer, don't come to church Lifting your voice to praise God and then going back into the workplace, leaving your commitment to him at the church. Don't, student, go in to your high school, leaving Jesus and your commitments to him back at Disciple Now. And it's really sermonic. And it sounds great, but it's not the purpose of this passage. It isn't Mary and Joseph's issue that they were neglectful or even intentionally forget. That's not the purpose of this passage. That's not the description of the passage. In actuality, the description of the passage is that Jesus... Most likely knew that they were leaving, but intentionally said, I've got to stay here because there's a greater allegiance that I have to be in my father's house about his business than even my relationship with an earthly mother and an earthly father. It is an interesting glimpse in what is going to be a theme in the Gospels between a clash of two claims upon Jesus' life. The clash of the earthly relationships he has with the eternal purpose that he has. You see this in the Gospels. You see it because there are times where Jesus speaks of earthly relationships in a way that we say, What? What does that mean? So he will say to the disciples, now I want you to come and follow me. But to follow me, you've got to leave family members. You've got to leave siblings. You've got to leave those. And he would even use words in the gospel. You have to hate them to follow me. Now, we know that's hyperbolic. We know that there's a sense of intended exaggeration to this. It isn't a sense that we're disowning them. But what Jesus is saying is, is that the eternal claims on a disciple of Christ's life, they, they proceed and they're more preeminent than even our earthly proximity to and, and earthly desire to, to really submit and to be around our family. So he'll say in this interesting gospel account in Mark chapter 3, there's these great throngs of crowds that are coming up around Jesus. And Mary and the brothers show up and they want to talk to the one who has drawn this crowd. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, hey, your mom and your brothers are out there. They want to talk to you. And he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. What has he done now at the age of 30 or 31? What has he done? He has fully crystallized this this important distinction that there is something more preeminent, more prominent than just earthly relationships, and that is the eternal purpose and will and way of God upon his life. And that even good, God-given relationships... Cannot be first place in our life lest they become idols that get in the way of God's place, God's purpose, God's direction, God's will, God's way for our life. Now, this seems theoretical. I can just look at you and see that it just seems like, what, what, what is, how does this come into my life? I mean, what, what does this even mean? How could there be a clash of two claims, one being eternal and one being earthly? Well, you don't have to imagine this. I mean, this happens all the time. Oftentimes it happens in predominantly Muslim cultures where the gospel goes forth and there's professions of faith. In my previous church, we had a partnership in Amsterdam for the sole purpose of reaching Moroccan immigrants that were working in Amsterdam, over 300,000 Moroccan immigrants working there. Anything goes in Amsterdam. So there's the ability to share more freely in Amsterdam with those that are coming in from North Africa than we could in their home context. Out of 300,000 immigrants that we knew of, there were 10 to 20 believers in Christ. I was sitting in a room with one of them and I said, what was it like when you shared to your earthly parents that you had become a Christian, steeped in Islamic culture, steeped in Muslim commitments? And he said to me, I remember it very vividly, it was a decade ago, I told my dad that I'd become a Christian. He didn't say a word to me. He slapped me across the face. That was a decade ago. I have not since had a conversation with him. He has disowned me. He will not speak to me. All of my attempts to restore even a semblance of a relationship, he puts off. I've had two children. He has two grandchildren. The first of the family. And he has not laid an eye upon them. You see, what this person is recognizing is the question of this passage. It is a question that presses all of us as disciples of Christ. Are we first and foremost sons and daughters of the King on high? Or are we first and foremost a son or daughter of our earthly parents? Let me just say that again. Are we first and foremost sons and daughters of the King on high? Or are we first and foremost a son or daughter of earthly parents? For that, Moroccan immigrants, that was raised in a Muslim context, he knew that he was first and foremost a son of the King on High. And if that was not met with approval by his earthly father, he would rather have the approval of his eternal father than even an earthly father. But you say, that's really far removed from where I live. I mean, we encourage, we pray for our grandchildren to accept Christ, David. We pray for our children to accept Christ. Why, how in the world could there be an intersection and a clash between faith and family? Where could this even come into my life? And oftentimes it's subtle. And there's slaps across the face. But there can be. i tell you a story that's purely hypothetical, but it is a it is a true to life story. I'll tell you a story that I'm not deriving from uh, sitting down with somebody that's a member of Dawson, but it is a true-to-life story. Imagine with me a student at Sanford University. She's a bright student. She comes into Sanford with this great legacy of, of Sanford family members. Her grandfather is a graduate of Howard. Her dad and mother met at Sanford. Her older sister, brother. There's a path that's been paved in her family. It's a path to law school, a path back to the local family law practice, one that was started by her grandfather. The story is is that her older brother is going to be a partner before long. So it's pretty clear that there's a narrative that's been written that she's going to play the next chapter in. But there's an interesting thing that happened. She comes to Sanford. She starts attending a church. And the claims of the gospel upon her life and the leadership of the Holy Spirit on her life takes her into campus ministry and then it takes her into opportunities to serve overseas in foreign contexts. And there just becomes this heart and this passion. She never heard a voice out of the sky. She has seen no lightning bolts, but there's just this clear compulsion that she is to give her life as best that she knows it as a senior with one semester left at Sanford uh, to give her life to that foreign context, to give her life to that cross-cultural expression of the gospel. So she goes home. And she hasn't made any applications to law school. But she comes home with two applications to seminary. And there is no forcible critique. No one gets slapped across the face in this story. No one is discouraged explicitly in this story, but they're just subtle hints that, boy, are you sure about that? Are you sure you want to settle for that? The way the story goes, she walks into the room, her parents Are turned away from her. They're having a conversation. She overhears the conversation. Where one of her parents says to the other. Maybe it's just a passing phase. That she'll grow out of. And we can encourage her now. And eventually she'll come back to her senses. Kind of the reversal of the prodigal son. I had a missions professor at Sanford, you know, at Beeson Divinity School there at Sanford, just right down the road from me, that I remember very powerfully him saying one time that one of the greatest subtle discouragements that can occur in individuals and families that give their lives to a foreign context for the sake of spreading the gospel are well-meaning, really loving family members. Who just don't understand. Who just say, are you sure you're going to go that far away? You're taking my grandchildren. You're not going to be here for my... You see, it's subtle ways where faith and family can kind of come into conflict. I know there are a lot of parents in this room. And you want the best for your children. You have the maternal instinct of Mary... You want your children to not have to face too many trials, too many tribulations. And so oftentimes, in our best desire for the best for our children, we pray Jeremiah 29, 11 for them, and we want God's plans and His desires to give them a hope and to give them a future, not to harm them, but to prosper them. But if we're not careful, we would never explicitly say this, but His plans become our plans. His will gets replaced with, God, use them, take them, do in their life whatever you want to do, as long as it's within a three-state radius. We, We want your will to be done as long as it's Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, preferably in the Birmingham metro area. And it's easy to laugh about it, And it's easy for me to laugh about it, but as I'm raising my kids, as you're raising your kids, as you've raised your children, we we know the temptation to say, God, protect them. God, send them, use them. But just as Mary would never have wanted that direction to lead through Gethsemane, to lead through Golgotha, Mary's maternal instincts had to play second fiddle To the eternal purpose of the heavenly father. And so it's often in our life. Not on a daily basis. But every family must go through that place. Where we must understand and submit. That God loves our children and our grandchildren. And he has a greater purpose. And he has a greater plan. Than we as the earthly parents could ever envision and ever could plan. And oftentimes, a part of that purpose leads through Gethsemane, and it leads through pain, suffering, difficulty, trials, and challenges. And there's a temptation as parents to shelter. There's a temptation as parents to say, no, we're not going to allow that to happen. What we do is, is we get in the way of the greater plan, the greater purpose that we see here in this passage where Jesus says, I must be in my father's house. I knew you left. Why were you looking for me? This is what I'm about. Now, your son, your daughter, guess what? The job description It's not being shared for the Messiah of the world. That, That job has been filled. So your son, your daughter, your grandchildren, they don't have to be Jesus. Guess what? That job has already been taken. But there is a word for all of us to hear this morning. That God desires to call us, use us, stretch us, mold us, send us. And there are times where that commitment to His eternal purpose comes into dissonance with our earthly plans and purposes. And what wins? What wins is what we worship. In the name of biblical values, sometimes we've allowed... The idolatry of family. To overpower our allegiance to our eternal heavenly Father. In a sermon like this, there are a million disclaimers that I could give. There are a million nuances and footnotes. All of us know that at times, earthly and eternal plans... Don't come into conflict. We could all give examples. Of how earthly parents have encouraged us. In his will and his way. But even with those disclaimers. We must stop and pause. Stand in the feet of Mary. Hearing the eternal son of God saying. I've got a greater purpose. Would we still hear as parents and grandparents. The voice of Jesus the power of the Holy Spirit saying to us oh I've got plans for your children I've got plans for your grandchildren I've got plans for your parents I've got plans for your siblings I've got plans for your friends and they're greater than anything you could imagine trust me let us pray